Welcome to The Music That Makes Us, a podcast of music and musicians that help shape and form various stages of our musical lives. From early childhood to early adulthood to now, we are not professionals, but just fans of music and how it affects our lives. So sit back and put on your headphones and take a trip back or maybe forward on this musical journey. I'm Donnie Z. And I'm Randy T. Ready to take you back for a little bit to the music that makes us. For today's episode, we'll be looking back at the one and only Billy Joel and how his music came to be in our lives. Welcome, everyone, to The Music That Makes Us. This is our very first episode, and we're going to be looking at Billy Joel and the moment that we can recall he became a part of our lives. Uh, My name is Donnie Zelaya. I am a high school teacher, but I also have just been an audiophile and music fanatic for as long as I can remember. And luckily, I have someone who's pretty simpatico with me, my main man, Randy. Uh, he's going to give himself up here a little bit, tell you a little bit about himself. Yeah, uh, I, um, I'm a teacher. I teach elementary school, and uh, I teach a media class uh, from first grade through sixth grade. They come to me, and they do uh, media projects, and we have a television station. And, and we have a radio station, actually, where they, they, they do some uh, playing music, and they, they take my passion, and they put it on the, on the internet wave through our internet radio station. Um, but <clears throat> we're here to today to discuss. Uh, we, we were out a couple weeks ago, and um, we were just kind of talking music like we usually do, and we thought, why don't we just start throwing these conversations into podcast form, which, voila, um, here we have is the music that makes us. And one of the artists that we were talking about quite a bit the other night was uh, Billy Joel and how his music seems to just kind of um, sustain itself throughout the years. And uh, so we thought, yeah, maybe we, I need to dig in and, 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 and find out a little information about Billy and, and, and you know, relate to and, and see how it relates to our lives. And Billy Joel's been a big part of uh, not just both our lives, obviously, but for many people as well. Um, and just the different stories or the similar stories that we had as far as how he came into our lives, the effect the first uh, instance that we remember him. So we're going to kind of start at the beginning for each of us and, you know, our first little memory of Billy Joel and then kind of build on it and how it's grown over the years and maybe kind of, you know, tailed off like it does with some musicians. And then, you know, it just ramps itself back up again. So that's, that's the great thing about music is that you can constantly, you know, fall back in love with the same artist over and over and over again and just forget how good they were or how, instrumental in these various parts of your lives so we're um he's one that we definitely have uh, similar paths with so we're gonna get started here with our earliest earliest memories of billy joel so go ahead randy okay uh, <clears throat> i think my earliest memory um has to go back to 1977 a stranger and only the good die young um, that song, I, I for some reason, I just remember cruising around in our Plymouth Horizon, going to the grandparents' house in southern Ohio. It was a good two-hour drive. So for some reason, we would always hear that song um, a couple times there and a couple times back. And, you know, I think it was the first time I'd probably say that, you know, I was introduced to a rock star. And, and you know, FM radio is kind of new and on, on the rise, and, and he was finding his place in it. And, you know, it just became, you know, I, I think he might have been the first t- the first artist I could say, oh, I know that song and I know who sings it. So that's probably my earliest memory of Billy Joel is listening to that song, Only the Good Die Young. 
And I got to say, you know, there's a couple instances and one actually just popped into my head with uh, Bosom Buddies and just the theme song to that <laughs> with my life and seeing Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari just walking around and figuring out they got to have a place to live and whatnot. Um, but then also just hearing the keyboards or the synthesizers on pressure for whatever reason that just captivated me as a kid. And I was just like, this is so cool. And then I just kind of got into the, how, well, how do I find out more about this? And growing up in the early eighties, obviously didn't have access to information like everybody does now. I couldn't just hop on a computer or grab my phone and, you know, type in Billy Joel and find out everything I could about him. But luckily I had parents who were very on top of going to the library and, There was a time period where, you know, at least once a week we would go and check out books. And then my parents made me aware that, oh, you can also check out tapes, too. And then one, you know, eventually CD. So Randy and I go back to tapes was our main form of music consumption initially. So goes there. And then obviously we uh, um, advanced to CDs. And then we both have kind of come back around to albums as well. Um, but then going to the library to check out these tapes and then hearing all this Billy Joel. So then Glass Houses was the first instance of, you know, seeing a record and hearing more than one song from an artist. Because it used to be just like Randy said on FM, you hear one song and then you kind of got to wait around to hear it again, whether it's that same day or the next day or whatever it mm-hmm. is. But, you know, there was something about Billy Joel and his voice and just the different melodies that he used that kind of made me aware like huh this has got to be something because i you know hearing it in the television show but then also hearing it later on on the radio mike seeing the connection here and like hmm making that you know interesting observation so that was my first little hey this guy sounds pretty cool what do i you know i want to find out more about him even talking about our earliest memories of Billy Joel and, you know, maybe we need to go back and, and, and go back to, you know, his start and some of his earliest memories. And I've done some research the past uh, week or so after we've had our conversation that we want to do this. And I thought, you know, probably the easiest way for me to go back and, and, and do some research is to start with his earliest albums. And um, his his first, you know, studio album was Cold Spring Harbor. And um, what I did learn about that album was, you know, it had a, it had a great song called She's Got a Way on it. And it was a great hit and eventually, but he, I found out, was not happy with the, um, with the production of the album. In fact, he said he felt like the, the, it was too fast the way it was uh, recorded, and he thought he sounded like a chipmunk. Um, it was done by um, a family, produ- uh, family Productions, and um, unfortunately, he signed a contract with them for I believe it was 10 albums and um, he had to stay with that contract in uh, until 1986 the bridge and um, which I found uh, really interesting but uh, after he made that that album and he did not like the way it came out um, he actually went out to LA and so Billy fell prey to what many musicians at the time did where they ended up signing long-term deals not really realizing what they were doing, thinking they were getting a big break. And instead it came to haunt them down the road where they were doing all the work, putting in all the time and sweat and getting very little in return for the product they were putting out. And in his case, it was fantastic. And, you know, some of these people had noticed that he had this talent and, you know, 
they come in like vultures and swoop in and they want to get that majority piece of the pie and thank goodness it's kind of changed and turned around quite a bit in recent years but uh you know he's just like any artists that fell before him you know the rolling stones were one of the bigger ones that had to deal with that as well so billy paid the price for a good number of years before he could get out of that initial deal yeah um so he even had he played in that piano bar called the executive room under the name bill martin and um he found himself doing uh, one of his songs captain jack in uh, philadelphia on a radio show and actually got noticed by Columbia Records, and Columbia Records came in and signed him, but they had to sign him under the agreement that, you know, the Family Productions logo would still be put on his records, and uh, he had to do that until 1986. Um, But what's interesting is, while he was in this, you know, executive room playing the piano, that's where he wrote Piano Man, and it's actually based on, you know, the real people you hear on the song were real people in the bar. Um, the album definitely had some country western and bluegrass influences, and but DJs loved this song and it became really, really popular on the radio. You know, I don't. I, mean, I love Piano Man. I mean, Piano Man. The lyrics are catchy. They're easy to remember. Um, I sing it in the song. I sing it in the car with my son. My son notices it. Um, what do you What do you think makes it a great song? It's It's relatable. It's about real people. It's not about big timers. It's about people who are dreamers, just like he is and was at that stage in his career. You know, from the bartender who thinks he's got something better going on to um, the kid in the military who, you know, this is, he's, he's not the brightest, but he's a hard worker and he'll work his tail off for you. And it's like, okay, if that's going to get me a career, then that's fine. But there, every single person that he mentions or talks about in that uh, song is relatable in one way or another and it's slow it's catchy it's clear and it's one of those few sing-along songs that you put it on and whether it's karaoke or whether it's at a wedding or wherever you may be at a party you know high school college afterwards most people at that party are going to know it and if you're a certain age that is and you know (laughs) you're all going to end up singing the chorus together swinging back and forth holding your drinks up and you know just being able to enjoy the moment so that's like it's definitely a party lifter in every instance which is why i think it got so much airplay then and still continues to now so it just helps lift the mood or enhance the mood of any setting or situation you find yourself in you know and who doesn't like a song like that who doesn't like a song that's going to make you just kind of you know Perk your, pick your chest up a little bit, throw your shoulders back and just kind of, you know, whether you're belting one out or just kind of like put a smile on your face. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what it's all about. Yeah. There used to be an establishment downtown with the dueling um, pianos and that was always, you know, a song that was always played and, every, you know, everyone always requested it throughout the night. You know, they'd always try to save it to the end because it was, you know, the big song um, during during those years and probably in the, you know, the, the, the early 90s. Um, when we, you know, when we were old enough to go into establishments like that, but uh, definitely a, a great song, and which definitely got him noticed um, and, and signed. And um, you know, he went on to, you know, it was kind of him talking about the struggles of being where he was in his career. But then he, you know, he he started hitting it big with Street Life Serenade. 
And, you know, he came out with the song The Entertainer, which was kind of, you know, talking about the, uh, the, you know, the struggles of being noticed and being famous. You know, he goes from not being famous to being famous and still complaining. But in he'll, in he'll meet, it's kind of funny that, you know, he would write, you know, one song one way and then, you know, a couple of years later, write another song another way. Yeah, it's a careful what you wish for kind of thing. And it's, it you really know, is. It's like that's that's what he is. And, you know, you come here and like make me make me feel good, buddy. You know, everyone has these demands of you, whether you're performing live or whether you're at a bar or you know it's a big venue, whatever mm-hmm. it is. You know, people pay their money, pay their cover charge, whatever it may be. They want to. They want to have an experience. You know, right. maybe not necessarily life changing, but just a hey, I came here for whatever reason. You know, whether it was I'm feeling bad and I want to feel good, or I feel good and I want to feel better, or just whatever. And you know, but some people just tend to be a little bit more not necessarily greedy, but just have these expectations of I want to have a experience I can share with others. You know, through that um, experience, uh, you know, through the piano man, he did, you know, get popular. And and with that popularity came touring and um, he got so busy, but he still had to, um, he still had to make albums for the, for the record company. And uh, so they started, you know, Street Life Serenade in 1974 and it did have the entertainer on it. But I did find out something interesting that uh, Elvis Presley's drummer, um, old drummer Ron Toot, Toot played on um, the uh, the album. And um, but it just the album didn't come out um, as 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 well as um, the Piano Man album. Um, and credits are that you know Billy Joel was busy touring and opening up for groups like the Beach Boys and things like that. So he's obviously gaining some popularity if he's you know catching the eye of somebody who's worked for Elvis and then a band such an iconic band like the Beach Boys you know he's obviously got some similarities there to where someone's going to want to bring him aboard and you know help ramp up the the band, uh, the audience before the initial band come or the original band comes on so he's definitely getting some exposure but again he's still that fledgling artist in a sense where he's trying to come up with more and more feeling the pressure to you know produce another hit so it's just like anything else you get one hit and it's like okay what else you got what else you got what it's you know just music's what have you done for me lately so from you know piano man entertainer you know he's definitely trying to up his game and see what else he can do to appease the masses or Mm -hmm. what he can do to you know help spread his name and notoriety not be that one hit wonder that everybody you know despises or everybody you know doesn't want to be known for in their career right and then i guess you know <clears throat> he you know he spent that time in la and he started getting big and started touring um I, he said uh, i saw an interview earlier today where he said um he saw a newspaper um about new york and um how um they, the government wasn't going to bail new york out and there was a big headline and he said you know maybe that was his sign he's going back to new york and, he, and if new york's going down he's going to go down with him so he started heading back to new york and i guess on the way back to New York. He stopped through Colorado to start recording turnstiles, but just didn't like it. It was dissatisfied how it, how it was recorded. And so he actually went back to New York, to New York and re-recorded the entire album. Um, and it was the first album to use his own band instead of studio musicians, which I found that was interesting. And he also, if you ever look at the cover of turnstiles, you see a, a bunch of people on the cover and they're in a subway. 
um, and, and, and on the turnstiles. That's actually a, an abandoned subway where they took that shot from. And each person is supposed to represent each each song that's um, that's that's in on the album. And some of the bigger hits from that album were "Say Goodbye to Hollywood" and, of course, uh, "New York State of Mind." Um, was huge, and um, and it still is huge today um, for him and in the state of in the city of New York. And uh, he did some shows in Carnegie Hall in 1977. Um, and uh, a popular producer caught it, and uh, his name Phil Ramone. And uh, Phil, Phil Ramone um, would um, be introduced to Billy, and um, together they would create his uh, next monster album. Yeah, and Billy's definitely associated with you know the New York uh, area for sure. He references it in several of his songs. You know the fact that he's saying goodbye to Hollywood. You know you can just see him, and he makes sure and mention it, and then he talks about all the you know the fishermen and the the boats and whatnot and he definitely identifies with that blue collar even though he grew up on long island it was still not the long island that many people know today mm-hmm. it was still working man it was still you know very very blue collar and he managed to identify with many of those individuals and was able to you know put their lives to song and drew inspiration from that which is probably key to why he was struggling when he was out touring. He wasn't seeing that, you know, daily influence and realizing that, you know, just writing about what you see and what you experience every day can be so connective for people. You know, it's what music is in general as you see, you know, you latch onto something that you can relate with, like, oh, identify with this person for one way or another, you know, and, the blue collar New York um, mentality is definitely Billy's calling card and has been for a long time. Yeah. Um, I, I would totally agree with that. Uh, so he, you know, he, he, he made that album and the next thing you know, he's turning around and he, and he's just making this incredible album and it was made in 1977. It was made in three weeks and it's called the stranger, the stranger, um, produced four top 40 billboard chart hits which include just the way you are moving out she's always a woman and only the good die young that's one of my favorites and uh <clears throat> it won two grammy awards for record of the year and song of the year for just the way you are which is kind of crazy is the song that won song of the year billy originally didn't want it on he thought it was too much of a ballad and he thought it didn't go along with the other songs and um they actually um uh, they brought Linda Ronstadt and Phoebe Snow in into the studio and had them sing it. And they actually convinced them, no, you need to keep this song on the record. And, it, you know, the rest is history. You know, <laughs> it becomes the song of the year. Um, and there's so many stories about that where, you, you know, the artist is so dissatisfied with a song that becomes this monster hit eventually. And then, you know, it's like, oh, no, that's awful. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people who come in who've already been established like a Linda Ronstadt and a Phoebe Snow and they get a hold and they hear it and they're like, are you out of your mind? (laughs) No. And like, oh, well, okay. You know, and it's Mm -hmm. that critical um, part of our brain that just doesn't shut off. It's like, oh, we hate everything that we do Mm -hmm. or we're highly suspicious. "Eh, Is that really any good? I don't know. You know, there's obviously you have to have some sort of confidence to be successful music wise. Uh, but you also have to have good people around you. And that's just kind of like with everything in life, you know, good people have, or successful people have good people around you. Right. And they're the ones that kind of help pick you up. They're the ones that tell you when you're being an idiot and you need to, uh, you know, get your act together. 
But, you know, they also need to be the ones to help reassure you in times when you're not feeling confident. That's mm-hmm. what, you know, Billy kind of needed at that time. And having, you know, four, like you said, monster hits, uh, just had to do nothing but just prove to him that he can make it in this business and he's got so much more in the tank. Well, what's crazy is I, I think if, um, you know, there weren't so many constraints on radio back then. I think it would have been, you know, the, the, the Italian, you know, the uh, scenes from an Italian restaurant. That song is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. But, you know, originally it's, it's actually, it combines three songs. It, the Italian restaurant song, Things Are Okay in Oyster Bay, and the ballad of Brenda and Eddie. It combines three songs. Yeah, it's very Beatles-esque. <laughs> it's very Beatles-esque, which we'll get to in a little while. You know. Um, in uh, you know another song that I I've really grown to like on that album is uh, Vienna, and uh, Vienna was uh, you know an interesting it, it was an interesting song to look into and learn a little bit about you know w- he wrote it when he was in Vienna visiting his father and watching a woman an older woman uh, clean up and, and sweep and uh, so I I kind of found you know a more of an appreciation for that song as I've learned about it and listened to it I've listened to that album with my kids and my kids know that album and they love that album and it's played the way an album should be straight through you know yeah um, it's interesting because it, it, you know when he get, when he's in concert he, uh, he said you know he sometimes he gives the audience a, uh, a choice of do you want to hear Vienna or just the way you are and the audience will overwhelmingly pick Vienna really yeah so uh, you know if you it, it, I, if you had to choose what what song you would want to hear which one would you want to hear off that album um. Probably only the good die young. That's you know the catchy one for me. But I'm I'm a sucker for ballads. I always like she's always a woman. You know that's one of those ones where you know you can catch yourself closing mm-hmm. your eyes, just kind of tilting your head back, and you're singing along to the song. You know whether you're doing it out loud or by your you know or in your head or whatever it is, mm-hmm. kind of mouthing the words. You know it's just that catchy. I don't know. Like I've always been a sucker for ballads. It's just kind of uh, it's that romantic right. part of me as a kid, just being you know being able to dance with a girl or a woman or you know hold mm-hmm. someone at that time and kind of sing that to them and think that I would <laughs> sweep them off their feet. Yeah, <laughs> just be like, look at this guy, mm-hmm. look at this Romeo. Wow, I gotta keep, I gotta I gotta date this guy. I got yeah. I want to I want to be with him. It was yeah. just the exact opposite, but you know that's just that's what it is. It's that that other place that the music takes us to, mm-hmm. and it's the, the okay. This is the scenario that I'm putting in my head, and you know, and I do that now. Like I'll hear that song, and I'll always think about my wife, and I'll always think about the early stages of our dating and our you know just courtship and everything, mm-hmm. and just go through. And obviously, there's something about our significant others that attra- that attach attract us to them, but then also, you know, keep us together. And just the fact that she is a woman in so many ways, and then some, and it's just so appealing on a variety of levels. But you know, that's it's just again one of the the talents and strengths that Billy Joel has as an artist right. is that he can do that to you. And again, that's what he does for so many people, but just that it's what help, you know, bring, it's like, Oh, if I could do my romantic playlist, right. what would I play for somebody? Well, you got to look at this album, you know, he calls it the stranger, but I almost think it needs to be, you know, the woman album, you know, because if you look at the titles of the songs and, and the topics of the songs, 
it's it's about relationships yeah. and it's about you know the women um it, i find this interesting you know the stranger is made in 77 and i was looking up the information and you know it says spent 17 weeks at the billboard top 200 and it went all the way to number two uh what you know in you know the one album that was uh ahead of it was of course the disco Saturn Night Fever um, was ahead of it during the time. So uh, you know, if we could go back today, you know, you know, would we? Would it? You know, what? What would you listen to more? You know, oh, yeah. would you rather listen to The Stranger or would you rather listen to Saturn Night Fever? You definitely listen to The Stranger. Stranger. You know, and I think <laughs> The Stranger is also you know maybe a little nod to the fact that he's saying you people may think you know me, but this is this is kind of who I am. And this is a completely different approach to music that he's done previous to that. Yeah, I did, you know, Captain Jack and I did Piano Man. They're kind of catchy and they're a little here and there. But now I'm about to just get a little bit more relationshipy. This is up, you know, so this is almost like that next phase of not just his musical career, but also ours. And it's the growth that he's showing. It's the growth that we all show as people, too. And it's that, yeah, you think you know me? No, you don't. So whether it's a nod to the audience and to the mm-hmm. to the fans or even to the record executives, you know, because I'm sure he felt the pressure of, hey, put out more Piano Man. I want to get more Piano Man. I want you to be, you know, I want more hits. We want more money. We want more whatever's going to drive, you know, revenue and um, billboard success. And he's like, no, you know, and that's the struggle that I'm sure many artists face is mm-hmm. they want what they want to do as opposed to what's trendy and what's popular. And, and you know, and <clears throat> that takes us to, you know, his next album. Once he goes one way, you know, he's going to go another way. And, and in seven, 1978 with 52nd Street, he takes us in a different direction and more of a jazzy album. And, you know, he, he recorded it um, in, you know, on 52nd Street and, and on 52nd at, 52nd Street in New York um, at A&R Recording Studios, which was right there in the heart of the center of the jazz scene during the, the mid-1900s, you know, that the, he, he took us a whole different way. Yeah. And again, you know, he's obviously a music fan himself and, you know, he goes and we'll talk about his influence of Ray Charles and, you know, the connection that he has with him. But he definitely um, emanates early 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 music and just seeing that changes and it's not you know you go from one album to the next and that's one of the great aspects about him at least that i liked is that it was constantly evolving you weren't going to get the same thing over and over again you know and this is again where you see the the big shot you know even though Mm -hmm. it's it's a commercial hit it's different from the others and but then again something like my life where it's a part of a a television show but it's also a message to you know that kids can relate with to their parents or mm-hmm. that he can relate with to a significant other or that with um the you know other people that are supposedly above you power structure wise it's like i don't care what you say you know this is my life this is what i want to do with it and this is what i'm you know i'm not breaking any rules or any laws I'm going out, I'm having fun, I'm living my life, I'm doing the thing I want to do. I'm not going to be put in a box mm-hmm. like society wants us to be, you know, you need to go here and do this and act this way and you know as early as the you know not early but as late as the 70s, you know this is theme is still prevalent to today but you don't really notice it. You're just kind of like, "Oh, I'm just going to sing this catchy song right. to this show." And now all of a sudden it's like, "Oh, yeah, it all makes so much more sense later on in your life after you've experienced it mm-hmm. yourself. 
So, um, you know, we, we get to the 1980s and um, Billy puts out these, uh, you know, he's putting out albums, it seems like every year or two. And he starts with Glass Houses and, you know, he gets You May Be Right and It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. Um, great cover. I love the cover. And actually, the, the house on the cover is, actually, is his actual house. But he's, he wanted more of a harder, harder, edgier sound with, you know, the guitars. And he introduces the electric piano in, in, in this album, um, which brings it into a more of a harder um, album than, than his jazz album that, you know, he just, you know, put out. And, that, you know, he's, he's changing once again to a different sound. Um, in the 92, he carries on to the Nylon Curtain. And it's kind of interesting. I like the, I love the the um, nylon curtain. I love Allentown. I, I love Pressure. I love Goodnight Saigon. Um, they're just they're just solid songs that you know, speak to me about America and where America was with Reaganomics and things like that. And uh, one song that came across to me um, the other day, I was listening to Laura. And as I'm, you know, I'm, I really, you know, Laura's, I never really paid much attention to it, but I thought, you know, we're doing this, this, this podcast. I thought, you know, let me really listen into these songs. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, man, this, this really has a Sergeant Pepper's feel. It has a Beatles feel in it. And uh, I was watching an interview with him. Uh, you know, a day or two after that, and he talks about the nylon curtain. He talks about how he tried to get a Sergeant Pepper's feeling, and I thought, well, there it is. He definitely got that feeling because I heard it, and you know, it was kind of crazy that that's what I was thinking. You know, a day or two before, and then I hear him. The words actually come out of his mouth. Yeah, and that's just again the beauty of music is you can see the influences and the inspiration are just the little you know, uh, helpings or not necessarily samplings, but just how different songs sound like something from a different era Mm -hmm. or they're trying to recreate or evolve it, you know, and glass houses to me is, you know, one of my, the first album that I remember getting. And, uh, like I said earlier from the library, but just, you know, it's still rock and roll to me. You may be right. Just hearing those intro bass lines and just kind of, you know, what's matter with the song I'm writing, what's matter with the clothes I'm wearing. It's that, little rebel defiance like well, what do you mean i can't dress this way what do you mean i can't look this way what's wrong with it mm-hmm. so it's again that telling you you know well you're not fitting in you're not doing like well what's you know tell me what's wrong and maybe i'll change probably not but My- just you know i want you to tell me why i can't do this and that's mm-hmm. the essence of everything well, why can't i do it this way well it's never been done that way well why can't i be the first you know but then even um, getting into the nylon curtain, Allentown is one of the first videos I remember from Billy Joel and seeing mm-hmm. that. And it was a little somber. And he's talking about people losing their jobs in all these factory towns that are shut down. And you see the repercussions of that still to this day in places, obviously, up in Michigan. And Flint is the biggest one that most people know about. Um, but then pressure rack with the synthesizers and that, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, a little well, manic. Right. And they were experimenting, you know, experimenting with all these different sounds on that album as well. You know, look at Allentown, you hear, you know, the whistle, mm-hmm. you hear yep. the, the, you know, the, the steel being pounded. Um, in Goodnight Saigon, you hear the, the chopper Huey, you yep. know, as, you know, riding in the car with my son the other day. And I'm like, listen for the, the helicopter. And, you know, and I'm like, well, my, my father was in Vietnam. And I said, you know, this is what would carry your grandpa into, into the jungle and to, to fight, you know, or these helicopters. And that's what they sounded. And he definitely got that, that effect on. 
in that song, you know. And every time I hear that song, you know, it, it does take you back and you think of your dad. Oh, yeah. And of my dad, at least. And, yeah. you know, I saw that I saw him in concert in Louisville back in the, the early 90s. And um, he played that song and he had some vets couple come on come on stage during the time. And, you know, he definitely became quite an entertainer and, and could tug at your heart um, with visuals like that and, and, and sending that message um, and having those veterans out there for that song. Um, so it was definitely a meaningful song for me. Um, but it's just an interesting album, the Nylon Curtain. Yeah, definitely. It, it doesn't get enough respect, doesn't get enough airplay or enough mention for sure. It's yeah. something that if you're a Billy Joel fan and you haven't uh, experienced the Nylon Curtain, you definitely need to go and oh, kind of give it, give it a give it a, a whirl or mm-hmm. a revisit and just kind of, oh, yeah, I forget how good this is and just, you know. Enjoy it yeah. like it's supposed to be. And the cover is supposed to um, look like a paperback book, which is kind of cool. If you, you stand back and look at it, it does look like a, a paperback book title on it, which is kind of a cool concept. Okay, and that's another part that you know we don't get to appreciate as much, I think, with music today is just the time and the specific the specificity that a lot of the artists put into their album covers and what they were going to mm-hmm. do to help generate that interest it wasn't just something like hey let's put the band on the cover or let's do this set there was so much time and effort that went into it mm-hmm. and you know even today we'll be out looking for records and just look and we'll buy something just because of the appeal of the album cover right. it's just something you can put up on your wall and put in a frame and mm-hmm. just enjoy the the just the visual beauty of it all, right. let alone the musical aspect of it. Right, and then you know if you if you ever want to if you ever want to like dig into album covers, there's a great uh, podcast, the the Vinyl Guide. He does, um, a, you know, he does some great podcasts on the concepts of um, the the albums of of of, of the covers, and pretty interesting. Yeah, he did one on Guns and Roses, Appetite for Destruction, which is a pretty interesting podcast. So you might might want to check that out. Well, you know, we're up to your favorite album, uh, mm-hmm. 1983, Innocent Man. What a great album. Um, you know, Billy was uh, single at the time, and he was dating a lot of women. And uh, one of his uh, models that he ended up dating was Christy Brinkley. And, you know, so he definitely had some inspiration uh, for this album from what he was seeing. But he wanted to get more of a throwback sound to the 60s uh, doo-wop groups, R&B groups, and get that Frankie Valley and Four Seasons and Motown sound that, uh, you know, through this album. Uh, one song, Easy Money, you know, he's paying homage to James Brown and Wilson Pickett. And I could tell you every, you know, sit here and tell you every song. When you look it up, you can see who he's paying homage to with that song. But uh, great album uh, cover to cover, you know, from, from beginning to end, I think. Oh, yeah. um, if I had to pick, you know, my favorite song, um, you know, I was looking at this. And The, long, the Longest Time... Um, I, I love that. Um, it's acapella. You know, you've got this. It's just, it, it takes me back to such a cool sound that I didn't live in. But, you know, my dad used to play these, you know, old doo-wop group songs. And it took me back to that that sound. And that's a sound that I was growing up with. And this song took me back to that. And that's, I think that's why I liked it, you know. And, you know, what, what makes me like a song? Well, you know, when you hear in the car, you know, the old 50s, 60s stations, Growing up, you're gonna you're going to be attracted to the songs that have that sound. And the longest time off that album definitely gave me that feel. Exactly, that's the song that you know Billy Joel, Innocent Man. The tape was always in whatever car we were driving around with, whether it was the person whose car it was or if somebody always had it on them. And you know, in high school, we're 
not irresponsible, but we'd pack as many people as we could into these cars and driving around, going wherever, just being miscreants. But longest time, whenever that came on, everybody was just singing along, doing different parts, everything. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned your dad had that on the 50s and 60s doo-wop. My dad, you know, we didn't have a ton of music on when I was a kid, but the the platters was definitely one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they just made smoke gets in your eye just that <laughs> and just having my dad hear my dad yeah. sing that like oh yeah and hearing that but definitely um longest time is a fay for that definitely one of the top three for sure innocent man again one you can oh, kind of sing to yourself and just you know over and over again um uptown girl got to be you know it was that was a popular one that was the video that's the one with christy brinkley obviously and everything you know which one i think is pretty underrated is this night um i just i love that song and the more i listen to that album the more i'm i'm really intently listening to that song um this night and uh it just i didn't i don't think i had an appreciation for it as a younger kid but as i've grown up to it and listening to the sound that is produced through that song i I, i've just got a more of an appreciation of it yeah absolutely and then even something like keeping the faith where you you can apply that to so many different aspects of your world and what it is and it's just that we have that self-doubt on am i doing am i going on the right path is this you know what i should be doing Mm -hmm. and it's sometimes it's you just gotta you just gotta keep moving. You can't, you know, just quit too early. You don't wanna, mm-hmm. you know, say, oh, or have second thoughts or second guesses or whatever. But, you know, Innocent Man is definitely what made my little friend group, you know, that whole Billy Joel like, ah, oh, yeah, we like this guy. And then <laughs> and then that's what propelled us backwards when we got into the greatest hits albums and everything. Uh, and that's and that's what came you know, that's what came in eighty five was the greatest hits. Yeah. And I feel like that reintroduced our our generation, our you and my generation, to all of his previous hits. Cause you know, I mean, I didn't have all his all all of his records on hand because you know when yep. I was a kid, I was buying the cheapest thing, which was forty fives, yep. and then it was tapes. And you know, I I very rarely bought tapes. I'd mix, you know, get mixtapes and and record off the radio. So when his greatest hits came out, it was kind of like, uh, yeah, I've heard these songs. I love these songs. I gotta get this CD. Yeah. And or this double tape, and uh, that's what you did. And uh, the greatest hits, I think, was one, one volume one and volume two, was probably you know a pretty influential greatest hits album for our generation. Oh yeah, think a, about it. It was a staple. You know, with any you go to school, yeah. even you know go away to college, whatever. You got your CD collection, your tape collection. Almost everybody, everybody had had it. had it. Or yeah. if someone didn't, you're like, what's wrong with you? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be friends with you, or you're something offer yeah you know here here let me educate you a little uh-huh. bit on on this man but then it's again like i said we're going back and we're finding out more about this guy like oh oh there's more before, before yeah. innocent man before glass houses before what and then because you know some of uh, sometimes piano man didn't get as much airplay in the 80s and 90s as it would obviously when it first came out right. and while there were classic rock stations you know, I mean radio stations when we were growing up it didn't really quite fit into that classic rock mode you know it mm-hmm. was more Zeppelin the Who the Stones 
you know, uh, some, uh, some of the other hard rocks and thin Lizzy here, they're dependent, but Billy Joel kind of fell in that easy listening. Right. And, you know, they weren't going to play necessarily the piano man, or you weren't going to hear it because you weren't listening to easy music. That's something your parents might listen to, or you'd hear right. or rather hear there. We were more like rock and roll. Yeah. Right. But at 85 was a, definitely a big year when that album came out. So in uh, 1986, um, The Bridge came out, and um, he, had, he had just had a daughter. Um, he, he said it was difficult writing and touring. He wanted to be a father, and you know he wanted to slow down a little bit. Uh, he said the song Temptations about him not wanting to leave his daughter. He also, though, with this album, got to record with Ray Charles, one of his idols. And um, he refers to this album, The Bridge, as a transition album between Innocent Man and Stormfront. And um, he, he, I would agree with him. It's more of a transitional album. You know, it had This Is The Time, A Matter of Trust, and Modern Woman. Um, Cindy Lauper actually helped him um, sing the, um, with the song Code of Silence, which I found out. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, and his daughter's uh, named Alexa Ray after Ray Charles, actually, too. Yeah. So Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, so it's nice to be named after somebody of uh, that significance musically, obviously. Definitely. And the bridge, you know, led him, you know, it did, you know, if you look, he went from 86 to 89 and for his next studio album, which was, you know, he wanted to spend some time being a father. Um, and he, the next next album he came out with was Stormfront and um, Stormfront had the big one, definitely. Yep. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, you know, he was turning 40 and he said he, he went back and reflected from 49 to 89 and just looked at the big headlines and all of a sudden... It comes out with We Didn't Start the Fire, which uh, actually would be interesting to go and rewrite it today. Yeah, <laughs> that it's would be, been... <laughs> that's interesting. You know, go look from our childhood, you know, whether it's like at age 10 or whenever you remember when the first significant news story of your of your life and then kind of build forward from there and just pick out. Uh, you know, two or three or four of that year and what they were. And it's that's kind of interesting because that's like a little project that I have. Uh, whenever I teach seniors, I have them go back through their high school years. So their freshman year, sophomore, junior, senior, they have to pick a significant thing that happened in the world mm -hmm. that year, something significant that happened in the country. So nationally, something significant state-wise, and then something personal. It doesn't have to be super personal, but just like what was the biggest event or the most memorable experience you had that year. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like they're kind of building their own. We didn't start the fire, too. Right. But, and I, I think teachers have been using it from the minute it came out. I mean, the minute it came out, I, I believe I was a junior in high school. Yeah. And our history teacher grabbed a hold of it, and you know, we had an assignment on it. You know what? What are all these headlines? Get into groups, and you're going to present. You know this 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 part of the song. You're going to present this part of the song. And what is he talking about? Mm -hmm. And you know, here we are in, in 2020, and you know my my 14 year old's coming to me, and he's singing the song, and he's researching the song, and he wants to know why and what these lyrics mean. And I really want to say to him, why don't you write the next? You know, the next lyrics that go on. Exactly, and it's interesting too. Because I'll say that same thing. I have a 14 year old daughter too. And uh, it's, I just talk about significances or lines from the song where I'm like, oh, there's one here where it talks about children of thalidomide. And if you didn't know what that was at the time, I just happened to fall across something doing research for, I don't even remember, but somehow I came across this picture of 
babies that were born with flipper feet and flipper hands mm-hmm. and arms. I'm like, what caused? And I just and it was an anti nausea drug that was um, not banned at the time in the 70s called thalidomide that women took obviously to stop you know dealing with the issues of pregnancy. And once they traced the the causes of thalidomide to what was happening, they banned it. But it's actually still legal in, or it was legal at the time in Brazil. And now uh, it had reared its head back up because it is a drug that is used in HIV or AIDS. I can't remember, but there's something, Mm -hmm. or maybe, I'm not sure it was cancer, but it's been back in the news a little bit recently because it caught my attention again. And I just remember seeing that picture of these little children born this way, just being so distraught and heartbroken. Yeah. And it made me kind of look a little bit deeper into it. But then, you know, obviously hearing it in the song too, like, this is crazy. This is so, you know, like, wow, that it was such a big, and obviously it should have been at the Mm -hmm. time, part of the life and understanding of, you know, that's something you don't want to do. Right. So definitely makes you wonder what the headlines would be, you know today and, yeah, and, and how they would fit into the song and where we've come. You and know, that's we, the, <laughs> yeah, that's the part that I enjoy about that project is looking through and seeing, you know, obviously there's some similarities that students will have as far as the big event, but then once you get more into local and once you get more into statewide, even personal, mm-hmm. you kind of see a little bit more, but that, you know, that national one is, is definitely something that's, um, a part of all of our lives and it's like you can't help but not pay attention you know mm-hmm. in my family we always watch the news the world news and local news every night at dinner and then you know we got the newspaper that's how old we are so we would sit down and I'd read different sections of the newspaper every morning and then obviously sports first and foremost but you know but then on the weekend for whatever reason I'm like well I need to read this whole thing because I need to know what's going on and just be right. Um, a citizen of the world or just be aware of what's happening. So you think that song actually helped you <laughs> become more of a citizen of the world? And I think it helped care? Me, I think it helped me, you know, grasp the significance of events and just history in general. Cause, but I always liked history. Mm-hmm. I always did really well in history in school and it's been one of my go-tos and I just like making the connections and seeing, you know, the commonalities, similarities yeah. and whatnot, but just, that something that actually delves on and pulls specifically from mm-hmm. it is just right up my alley. Well, so I always enjoyed that that video and watching that kitchen change yeah. throughout the years. You know, and I thought how brilliant, mm-hmm. how brilliant that was to show the years going by by the kitchen yeah. and the style. And I thought that that's that was pretty cool. Well, that's what they say sells houses, isn't it? Kitchens <laughs> still today. That's right. So. <laughs> All right, so we got uh, River of Dreams in 93, you know, uh, interesting that his wife, Christy Brinkley at the time, actually designed the cover of that album, and um, he says it's, you know, had a gospel influence, and he really didn't want to write, write it at first. He, he said he just couldn't shake the song off when he woke up one, one morning. He was like, I just can't get that out of my head, and it's coming through as a gospel sound, but, you know... He ended up putting it on. He's, you know, it has a lot of biblical references in it. Um, he doesn't really know what it means. He, he, he said, and he, and he couldn't figure out why he wrote it, but he did, and it actually became the the most popular song on the album. Um, which gets me to, um, you know, some of the other songs on it were "No Man's Land," "The Great Wall of China," a minor variation, which I really like that song, and "All About Soul." Lullaby, also a good one, and then you've got River of Dreams. But it's the last one that is in, is interesting to me is the famous last words. This is last song. 
and it's his last words of, of composing and writing, um, he said, and, and, you know, this was going to be it. He felt like this was it, and this is the way to go out, kind of poetic. Yeah, and I've read other articles where he's just, you know, people put pressure on him to come up with something new, and he's like, why? You know? Right. And he goes, well, <laughs> I, I think I've done it, not necessarily like, you know, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't need to do anymore, but it's just like, I've got a pretty good body of work here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to put any more stress and angst on myself. I don't need to feel the weight of record companies or anybody else. And obviously you can put it out yourself now today, but you just like, I think I've done a pretty good job. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to fine tune some of these. I'll tour, you know, I made enough money. I don't need to keep, you know, filling that up or making more money for more people or whatever it may be. I'm good. I don't need to, you know, I can just kind of relax, mess around on my piano or play a little bit, you know, be a father, um, he's gotten divorced, remarried a couple times, I believe, had several other children, not several, but a couple more children. So it's just that chance to just be a dad and be around mm-hmm. more than maybe he was the first time. Yeah. So it's that learning from lessons of the past and everything. So it's kind of like, you know what, if I'm going to go out now, this is what I'm going to do. Right. Well, he's definitely been the sound, you know, a major soundtrack of my life and, and music that makes me. And, you know, um, through in my life and, uh, you know, I'm glad that I got to sit down and, and, and di- really dig in a little bit. And I'm no professional on, you know, knowledge on Billy Joel. I just uh, I'm an interested guy. And I sat down and and, and did a little research and, and, and wanted to know, you know, what a little bit more about these songs that he created that were a part that are a part of my life and that they continue to be a part of my life as I pass on to my kids and their interest in uh, Billy Joel. Yeah, I think that's one of the big part uh, parts of being, I think, a responsible musical parent is, you know, giving your kids the, not the, hey, this is who you got to listen to, but just like, <laughs> hey, you know, seeing what their interests are too, you, mm-hmm. you know, check this out or, you know, putting on something, just kind of having on the background, and just like, hey, who's this? Seeing if they're paying attention that could or not. Definitely be a topic of uh, in the future of music to influence your child with. Oh definitely. yeah, there's <laughs> there's see where they go. There's a long list, and you know, it's been it's been fairly successful right now for I think for both of us. I but, agree. But just that uh, you know, he's definitely one of them that just makes you stay back, and you know, we both have children who are involved musically in various ways so there's definitely that appreciation appreciation that's there and you know billy's at the center of it for for all of us so well um i definitely enjoyed uh talking about billy joel and his influence um i'm i'm randy toms or randy t i'm donnie z and we have enjoyed bringing you the music that makes us